some days it feels like COVID has changed everything, but it absolutely has not changed the grace of God. All right, this is week seven in our seven-week series, introducing and digging into our church's newly articulated core values. I hope this series has been helpful for you, not only in getting to know these values, but also in appropriating them and thinking about uh, how they describe who we have been, who we are, and who God is calling us to be. Uh, moreover, these core values are not just information, but they are also, or they exist also for the purpose of transformation. Uh, as we meditate on them, as we think about them, as we pray about them, as we seek to enact them, part of their purpose is to move us along uh, in our faith and in our following Jesus. I know that I may feel like uh, a nagging parent to some of you when I say we can all memorize these. Yes, a lot of nods here in the sanctuary, a lot of nods at home, I'm sure. Uh, but I'm okay with uh, being the nagging parent because I think it's really important that certain things be written on our hearts. I think there's immeasurable value and benefit in that. So I want to continue to encourage you, if you haven't already, to do your best to try, just try, to uh, write these on your heart to memorize them. We're going to say them uh, together right now. If you've got them uh, done by memory, you can close your eyes, put your hand in front of your face, something like that. One of the things about uh, speaking on a platform and publicly for me is I forget everything I possibly ever knew uh, when I'm in front of other people, but we're going to give it a whirl anyway. Let's speak uh, our new core values together. Following the Lord Jesus, we strive to love all people conditionally, serve our neighbors generously, advance God's purposes globally, pour into the next generation intentionally, and cultivate spiritual growth continuously. Way to go. Give yourselves an A. This morning, uh, with a few minutes that we have left, we're going to talk about the last of these values, cultivating spiritual growth continually. But before we do that, and do that through studying the Scriptures, let's pray again. Join me. God, awaken us from our slumber. Help us to be attentive to you. Open our eyes. Give us ears to hear. Make our hearts good and fertile soil to receive what you would have for us in and through your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray with hope in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are two books in the Bible that are attributed to uh, the disciple Peter, Jesus' close disciple Peter, and those books are aptly or appropriately named or known as First Peter and Second Peter, way in the back of our Bibles. And we're going to read from the second of those, the latter of those this morning, starting in chapter 3 with verse 18, where Peter wrote these words, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Grow. That was Peter's final instruction to those he was shepherding. Grow. And now back in 2 Peter to chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, uh, listen as I read and read along 
uh, at home on the screen. This too is the Word of God. Peter wrote, His, and the context is Jesus. Jesus' divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life or a life filled with God through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these things He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires with which we're familiar. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection this biblical idea of love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting what they have been cleansed, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter encourages his readers to grow. And Peter tells his readers how to grow. Some tips for growth, some ways to grow, some steps to growth, some essential elements of growth. Faith, in other words, trusting God. Goodness, in other words, doing good. Knowledge, self-control. Perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. And one may think that this could be a curriculum for spiritual growth, and maybe it was, and maybe it is. Peter writes in verse 8 that if a person possesses these qualities above in increasing measure, that that person will be effective and productive in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, effective and productive in the ways that they live, effective and productive in their living out and experiencing their faith. Now, do you ever feel, have you ever felt that though you're a Christian, you don't feel particularly productive or effective? It doesn't seem like things are maybe as they should be, that things are going as well as one might have hoped, that something is missing, maybe that something is wrong, that you're not living in the fullness or the completeness of what God intends. Surely God intends more than I'm experiencing. In verses 10 and 11, Peter encourages his readers to make every effort to confirm their calling and election. For those who do will never stumble, but instead will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom, which we know and understand is not just off there, out there, after we die, when we die, but is here and now as well. A rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which frankly sounds pretty good to me and sounds like what I'm at times missing. 
But how does a person get to such a place? How does a Christian get to such a place? Peter offers to his readers what might be called a plan or a program or a path or a curriculum. But it's not the only plan. It's not the only curriculum. It's not the only one in the Bible, but it is a plan. And there are other plans that can be used for spiritual growth. But before we get very far down this spiritual growth road this morning, I want to talk about spiritual maturity. Because if there is such a thing as spiritual growth, then it follows that there must also be or exist spiritual maturity. And what does spiritual maturity look like? What are we aiming for? Where are we going? Where do we want to go? Where do we want to be? What does spiritual maturity look like? And if one was to ask this question to 10 people, 10 church people, 10 Christians, 10 people, one would certainly get 11 answers or 12 answers or 13 answers. So I uh, asked this week a bunch of followers of Jesus how they would define and describe spiritual maturity. And sure enough, I got a bunch of answers. And some of the things that people said and responded stood out, which I think are worth sharing. So here we go. I'm going to go through those. Spiritual maturity for a Christian toward which spiritual growth aims, knowing that one will never completely arrive in this life, Spiritual maturity looks like the inner and outer dimensions of one's personality reflecting the character of Jesus. The inner and outer dimensions of one's personality reflecting the character of Jesus. Next would be loving God with all of one's heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving one's neighbor as oneself as a description or definition of spiritual maturity. And then comes faith, which has to be filled out with the words belief and trust. Faith that puts Jesus' words into action. We believe something when we act accordingly, Dallas Willard says. We believe something when we behave as if that thing is true. And until we behave or live or act in that way, we do not really believe or trust it. Faith that puts Jesus' words into action. Next is gratitude in all things. And then comes humility, less of me, more of Jesus. And I think, I don't know which comes first, grace or humility, but I'm aware that they are related to each other. And then prayer, and particularly a kind of prayer that is seeking what God wants more than what I want, more than what we want. As Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And then a desire for God. And I use the word desire almost reluctantly because the word desire in our modern English use often has negative connotations. Like uh, lust for more, desire for more, a craving an, an unsatiable desire for things that maybe aren't necessarily good. But what I mean here is a synonym for longing, for yearning, for wanting, for committed to finding and reaching and having specifically God. Soren Kierkegaard, the great theologian and philosopher, existentialist as he was, said, purity of heart 
is to will one thing, to want one thing, to seek one thing, to yearn for one thing, desire. Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf of the 1600s, a a missionary and pastor and thinker, theologian, writer, wrote, I have one passion, and it is he, only he. I have one passion, it is God and only God, desire. And then comes Scripture shaped, or being immersed in God's Word and having one's worldview and life shaped by God's Word. Then comes obedience, which sounds like something that we expect of dogs, but it's so much richer than that in the Scriptures, to obey, to do, to follow. What the Word of God says, what God says, what Jesus said, obedience. And then communion with God, not communion in the sense of the Lord's Supper, but in the sense of fellowship, abiding with God and in God, knowledge of God, friendship with God. In a classic little book called The Practice of the Presence of God, a French monk named Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection uh, recorded his daily reflections on how he lived with God and experienced fellowship with God, communion with God, abiding with God in his life in the monastery as he washed dishes, as he scrubbed the floors, as he went about the daily chores that were a part of his life there, abundantly experiencing God through communion, abiding, fellowship, and friendship. And then last for now for this list, the fruit of the Spirit being displayed in a person's life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If you were to run into a person who was 100% completely at peace, you might think there was something special about that person. If you encountered someone or know someone who, is, who exhibits exemplary or stellar or perfect patience, please introduce me to them. I want to know them and learn the secrets of how they've accomplished that. But you would think there's something special, unique going on here. The fruit of the Spirit displayed in a person's life. And each of these is obviously a message or a sermon or two or three in and of itself. And we obviously don't have time for that this morning. But I do look forward to doing a series in the near future focused on what spiritual maturity looks like and on how to grow in that direction, toward that, how to grow toward that, how to grow spiritually, which we all can, though not all of us do, not all Christians ever do. It has become ordinary, and even the norm, or even expected in Christianity today, for people to become Christians, for people to be saved, for people to go to church, for people to join churches, for people to even master the Scriptures, and to never move forward in spiritual maturity, what the Scriptures describe as spiritual growth or maturity, to never grow or never grow much spiritually. In other words, it's become acceptable today to be a Christian without ever being a disciple of Jesus, without being a student and apprentice of Jesus, without becoming more and more like the Master, without learning to live our lives as Jesus would live our lives in the kingdom of God if He was in our shoes. And I don't mean this critically. I don't want it to sound judgmentally. It's merely an observation, including of my own life. It's just an observation. 
And we can also conclude, therefore, that spiritual growth doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen accidentally. We are born, we grow physically, we go through puberty and adolescence and adulthood and then midlife, and then we become mature in years, one may say in a politically correct, sensitive, loving, kind way. But mature in years is a very different thing than spiritual maturity. I think we would all agree. I read these words of Elaine O'Rourke this week, and I thought they were uh, good enough to share with you. She writes, uh, spiritual formation or spiritual growth is quite literally the forming or shaping of one's spirit. Remember that your your spirit is a substance. It will be unintentionally shaped and formed by your experiences, thoughts, feelings, habits, and fulfilled desires. Rather Rather than letting the world treat your spirit like modeling clay, you can influence what shape it becomes. You may choose to intentionally form your spirit with God's grace into one that looks like that of Christ. The process of spiritual formation is the process of reclaiming all our elements for the kingdom of God. That's what the spiritual disciplines are for, working with the action of God. The goal of spiritual formation is transformation. The transformation comes from God. Your role is to make space for it. And through intention and discipline, to train yourself to accept that grace. I like that. And admittedly, this process of spiritual transformation or growth or formation takes effort. And someone will reply, that sounds like works, like you're trying to say that we are saved by works. But we are saved by grace, not works. And that person would be right. We are saved by God's grace. However, the scriptures are continually clear that we have a role with God, a partnership, if you will, in our own spiritual growth. Moreover, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace works with, collaborates with effort. Grace is opposed not to effort, but to earning and to an attitude or an idea of earning, that we can earn our own salvation, that we can merit, that we can achieve, that we can in some way deserve salvation. We cannot. Twice in the passage that we read in verse 5 and again in verse 10 from chapter 1 of Second Peter, Peter used the word effort. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and so forth. Make every effort. And then at verse 10, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is opposed to the idea or the attitude that one can earn one's salvation, which cannot be done, is impossible. Instead, a person's salvation is made possible by grace. It is initiated by grace. It is ushered along by grace. We are, in all that we are and have, helped by God's grace, period. 
And yet we have a role. There's a role for us in this. And we can call this spiritual growth. Made possible by God's grace. And what we see in 2 Peter 1 is just one of many curricula in the Scriptures for how to go about doing that. One is not necessarily better than the other or more complete than the other, but altogether, the Scriptures provide this pathway to growing in spirit so that who we are more and more reflects the Savior. Now, think about this. Spiritual growth cannot be a Sunday morning only thing. It cannot be a Sunday morning thing. It doesn't work that way. If I was to exercise one morning a week, and maybe, maybe it was good, maybe I'd run five miles one morning a week, but nothing else. Would I get to fitness? Would I become fit? Probably not. If I ran five, what if I ran 10 miles every first day of the week, but didn't take, didn't watch what I ate, smoked three packs of cigarettes a day, drank too much alcohol, didn't get enough sleep, allowed stress to build up in my body, where would I be? Not a good place at all physically. And it's the same way with our spirit, as Elaine O'Rourke points out. It also has substance, if you will, and can be nurtured, can be developed, can grow. And that is what God calls us to aim for. That is what God invites us to. That is the richness of the riches that God has for us in his abundant kingdom. Available to us, not just when we die, but here and now in this world on earth today. And now one last thought as we uh, wrap up our thoughts about cultivating spiritual growth continuously. Whereas or if that doesn't happen often or regularly, why is that? One, maybe the church isn't helping. Maybe the church who has this as our fifth value isn't helping usher us along. Maybe there isn't the means. Though we try, those in leadership and your elders and staff and various leaders, try to provide a variety of opportunities for each of us to incorporate into our lives so that we might grow spiritually a variety of them throughout the week at different times in different ways, tools and practices and disciplines and events and groups. So one, maybe the church isn't doing what the church could be doing in that regard. Or two, maybe many of us or many in the church or many in Christianity never really intend to grow spiritually or do not know that we can or do not know how to do that, or that it takes effort. Putting our place, putting ourselves again, as Elaine O'Rourke says, in a space and in a place where God's grace can act upon our hearts and our minds and our spirits 
to grow us. Finally, I'd say this from Dallas Willard. He writes, Spiritual formation, good or bad, is always profoundly social. Spiritual formation or spiritual growth, good or bad, is always profoundly social. Because that's not the way I usually have thought about spiritual growth. I've thought about it as an individual event in a box in my home, in my life, packaged neatly. Spiritual formation, good or bad, is always profoundly social. You cannot keep it to yourself. Anyone who thinks of it as merely a private matter has misunderstood it. Anyone who says it's just between me and God or what I do is my own business has misunderstood God as well as me. Strictly speaking, there is nothing just between me and God. For all that is between me and God affects who I am, and that in turn modifies my relationship to everyone around me. My relationship to others also modify me and deeply affect my relationship with God. Hence, those relationships also must be transformed if I am to be transformed. Spiritual growth is a team sport, a community sport, something that we don't do in a silo or in a monastery necessarily, but that we get to do socially and interactively and even communally. By God's grace, making an effort on our own as well. The scriptures are abundantly clear as Peter ends, last words of anything that we ever had that he wrote. The scriptures intend that we grow and grow and grow and grow over the course of our lives. And we never arrive, in one sense, at spiritual perfection or even spiritual maturity. But then nevertheless, the scriptures call us to grow and offer us abundance as a result of that. May we receive by doing our part and relying on God's grace what he has for us. Let's pray. God, as we come to this table, we do so uh, remembering, being reminded, acknowledging, confessing that on our own and apart from you and apart from your grace that sought us out long before we ever sought you, knew of you, loved you, that you have opened the door to us to reconciliation, to communion, to fellowship, to love, and to abundance. We confess our slowness to embrace the gifts that you have given the paths and the curricula and the way that you have shown, thinking maybe that we know a better way or we could do this on our own. Forgive us, have mercy upon us, restore to us the joy of your salvation. Grow within us the things of your Spirit that as we commune with you, as we attend to you, as we do what Jesus said to do, that we might become more like the one who died, that we might live. And it's in his name that we pray together these words. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.